The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm really loud right now. <clears throat> My name is Justin. I'm the pastor here. Um, if you're visiting with us, thank you for coming. Some of us just wanted, we just said, we, we wanted just to defy the weather, I think, right? Like, screw it, I don't care, I'm going out, right? Can't win, can't win. Praying for spring, right? So, <clears throat> it's been a long weekend, it's been a great weekend. We had a marriage conference yesterday, which was uh, just superb. I, I didn't preach at it, I didn't speak at it, so that's why I can say that. Um, I thought it was excellent. I enjoyed it. And um, it's just been, uh, I think it was really, I think it served our church well. I think it served our couples well. Um, we're going to post that up on the city pretty soon so you can have those videos and you can watch that. And anybody that missed it can pick up on it. It was a great time. Um, but now it's, it's uh, time to get back into the Word. It's time to uh, jump back into 1 Corinthians. We will be finishing up. The third chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians today, we've been in out three, this uh, chapter for three weeks, and Paul's kind of concluding his argument, uh, you know, that whole thing about, you know, n- not beating a dead horse, well, Paul doesn't really believe in that. Uh, Paul is going to confirm that the animal is indeed dead, and he's going to continue to beat this dead horse, and I think it's because most of us um, don't pick things up on the first time, or don't pick things up on the second time. Uh, But many times it takes a lot of failure to get through our thick skulls that the best way to live life is God's way. The best way to live life is God's way. That God is not a cruel dictator in heaven trying to take away all the joy, trying to suck away all the fun out of your life. God is not that God. If you worship that God, I don't like that God either. And he ain't the real God. Right? If you think God is a killjoy in heaven, you have a wrong God. You are worshiping an idol, a figment of your own creation or your culture's creation. That God is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God of joy, a God who likes to increase his creatures' happiness by giving them more of himself, because ultimately that's the only way, only place happiness and joy is found is in Christ, in God, in the Holy Spirit. So, we're gonna, that's where we're going to go today. We're going to study this. We're going to look at this a little bit deeper. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, open up your app on your phone or on your iPad or on whatever knockoff model that you have. Um, and then you can also find a Bible in the back if you want to find a Bible in the back. <clears throat> right. We're going to be looking at the last few verses from 18 to 23. And I might be a little feisty this morning because I didn't get enough sleep and I had two cups of coffee. So here's where I'm at this morning. There's not much, I don't know if there's anything more frustrating or hurtful in this life than being lied to. How does it make you feel when someone looks you in the eye and lies to you. Angry? Powerless? Hurt? Frustrated? 
out of control, completely disrespected? How does it make you feel when someone looks you in the eye, right? They sell you the car, right? Perfect. Nothing wrong with it. Next day, engine blows up. Hasn't had an oil change in 10 years, right? Sells you the house. All kind of, no other stuff wrong with it. Give it to you anyways, right? Look, you, you think somebody did something? You look at them, you ask them, they say, no, absolutely not. Find out through the grapevine later. They did. Right? Boss says, you're first in line for the promotion. Next day, somebody else gets it. How does it make you feel when someone looks you in the eye and lies to you? Now, I'm pretty sure that everyone in this room has had someone do that. Everyone in this room has probably had someone close to us lie to us and hurt us. A family member, business colleague, a salesman, maybe even a pastor. Maybe you heard a pastor say, come to Jesus and everything will be perfect. Come to Jesus and he'll give you all the money and he'll give you all the health and he'll give you all the happiness that you ever need. Just come to Jesus and it'll be roses, baby. Right? Well, what usually happens? What do you do when someone does that? What do you, how do you respond? How do you respond? Oh, no big deal. How do you respond when someone looks you in the eye and they lie to you? Now, for me, maybe I think most of us, we probably, re- we remove our trust from that person, right? Okay, you lied to me. I will no longer trust you. I will now be more careful around you. I know I, now I, I can't share certain information around you or trust myself or my kids or my emotions or my finances. I know I can't trust you. So I'm going to remove myself from the situation. I'm going to pull back my trust a little bit. I'm going to be, and now naturally everything you tell me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to second guess everything you tell me because I don't trust you. Right? More than likely, we're probably going to distance ourselves from them. If we were in a close relationship, something's going to happen, and now we're going to pull back a little bit. We're not going to be near as close. Our heart's going to be a little more guarded. Our emotions are a little more guarded. The information we share is a little bit more general. Am I right? Is that, is that what we normally do when someone lies to us? I think all of those responses are good at times and they're appropriate and they're necessary. Like if you know someone is trying to deceive you, you should have your guard up. Right? That's discernment. Ladies, if you're dating and he lied to you once, right? He's probably probably lying to you right now. If you walk in the room and he closes the computer real fast, he's not working on a spreadsheet. Right? You want to see a text and he's putting his phone in his pocket, phone in his pocket real fast. Right? It's not his mama texting. It's probably a good thing to have your guard up and have some discernment up. You should fact check. You should double check the things they're telling you because being deceived can cost you great pain presently and in the future. It might be emotional pain. It might be financial pain. It might be relational pain, but here's the deal. It's all painful, right? Being lied to is painful. 
So don't we all agree that you shouldn't trust someone who consistently lies to you? Right? I'll let you. Anybody want to disagree with me right now? <laughs> right? We shouldn't trust someone who consistently lies to you. Okay. Now, now, since I've got you all in agreement here, we're all in agreement, here's a problem. Um, let me just throw this out there and see what happens. We all agree that someone who consistently lies to us, we should not trust them. Here's my premise this morning. Okay, what do we do when you have lied to you more than anybody else in the world? What do we do when you lie to you more than anybody else has ever lied to you? That's where Paul's at this morning. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. Now, why would Paul say that to people? Guys, stop lying to yourself. Stop tricking yourself. Stop deceiving yourself. Now, do any of us set out to lie to ourselves or deceive ourselves or trick ourselves? Like, I, I counsel a lot, and I've never, in t- over 10 years of ministry, sat down with someone, and the first thing they say to me is, Pastor, I'm really having a hard time. I lie to myself all the time. Like, I just cheat myself. I deceive myself. It's my biggest issue. Like, I'm really struggling. Like, I lie, and then I believe the lie. It's bad. And I forgot if it was really a lie or not. Like, I'm really convinced that I, what I told them, right? Like, it doesn't happen. People don't say that. You know, I'm just really struggling, struggling to just really stop lying to myself. But this concept is actually quite prevalent in the Bible, in several different places, in the New Testament, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in James, in 1 John. The authors all give warnings for people to not deceive themselves. And here it is. Listen, here it is. In every single case, it is people who think more highly of themselves than they ought. So when I say you lie to yourself, I love it because people get, who do you think you are? You don't know me. I don't know you, but Jesus does. And he told me, you lie to yourself. And I lie to myself. And it's not that I think I'm too bad. I usually exalt myself. I think too highly of myself. So the authors who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this said, do not be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. And because if you do, that's going to cause you great pain. Now, here's the thing. That's interesting because in our society, the, what our society and um, all of the pop psychology that we uh, gobble up, that, you know, if you used to watch Oprah, now you watch Dr. Phil and what all that other stuff, all that stuff that we gobble up, they tell us that our number one problem is actually low self-esteem. So the Bible says, stop thinking too highly of yourself. You're lying to yourself. But our society tells us, oh, no, 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 no. The, the real problem is that we think too low of ourselves. The problem that leads to all other problems is actually low self-esteem. Why did the kid shoot up the school? He had low self-esteem. Why did the girl starve herself? She had low self-esteem. Why does the guy or gal get addicted to drugs? They have low self-esteem. 
So we invent things like Instagram and Facebook where we can get a terrible and incessant flow of quotes and memes that can keep us feeling better and better and better about ourselves. If I see one more inspirational quote, like I had to get off Facebook, I had to, right? You can do it. You're beautiful. You're fierce, girl. You're the captain of your soul, right? You're great. Whatever you set your mind to do, you can do it. And what is this? Do? I've already talked about this, but what does this create? It creates American Idol, right? Where people get up in front of millions of people and look like absolute morons. People that have nobody that loves them or cares for them in their life to look at them and go, you're awful, bro. Take up fishing. Stop singing. You're terrible. Right? So they think they're good. They think they can do something. When They think too highly of themselves. They've deceived themselves. They've lied to themselves. And here's the freaky thing. They usually have two or three people with them. Like, are those two or three people? What's wrong with those two or three people? It's like a little, must, they must have created this little echo chamber. You know what echo, an echo, where everybody tells them what they want to hear and nobody actually tells them the truth. They're lying to themselves and somebody's right next to them going, oh, that was awesome. Do it again. Yes. Stand in line for 12 hours. You might make it. You might make it. Right? They've deceived themselves. And then the scary thing is they've even deceived some people around them. And what I believe the scriptures are trying to tell us is that deep down, listen, deep down, we all really believe that. We all naturally believe that we are secretly pretty awesome. And that all we need in this life is a little boost. Just a little bit of help. If I just had a little bit of more, little bit more money, I had a scholarship, if I just had a little bit of encouragement, if I had somebody in my life going, you can do it, you can do it, I can probably do it. Maybe all I need is a little boost from God. That's all I need. God, if you just give me a little boost, when I get up there, I'll give you one of those. Like, I just need a bo- little bit of help. I'm pretty awesome, but if you would get on my side, I'd be really awesome. Maybe just a little bit of luck. I just need some luck. And then finally, I'm going to be happy. But here's where, and I just love it. The Bible just cuts through all the crap of our society and our culture. Low self-esteem. Sometimes, I, 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 you know what, this ain't the Bible. This is Chris Ruff. Sometimes you just got to call people crazy, okay? We used to call people crazy. Not so low self-esteem. Right? They shoot up to school because they're crazy. <laughs> Sorry about that. I told you you might get a little more than you bargained for this morning. But listen, here's where the Bible is contrary. Contrary to the ways of our world. The Bible does not say low self-esteem is your problem. The Bible says high self-esteem is your problem. You lie to yourself. You're a habitual liar to yourself. You tell yourself you're better than you are, and that is your core problem. Now, and it says that's how you deceive yourself. But listen, I I was listening to this music. I I listen to all types of music, so don't judge me of what I'm about to say. But there's this newer song, it's a country song on the radio right now. It's by Lady Antebellum. 
And I'm not going to sing it because I'm awful. And it goes like this. It says, here's the words. It says, let your heart, sweetheart, be your compass when you're lost. Let your heart be your compass when you're lost. And you should follow it wherever it may go. And I'll be honest. When I'm alone in the car, I sing it loud. All right? I sing it. That's the only part I really know. Then mm, I hum the rest. But I think the message of this, but every time I sing it, and my wife's with me, I get mad. Like, I'm a preacher. I can't help it. When I have a bad theology, I have to argue with whoever, you know. So I'm telling my wife, this song's dumb, but it's catchy. <laughs> but here's the, here's the whole point. This song isn't saying anything new. Hey, if you're lost, follow your heart wherever it may go because you'll never be alone. Like, follow your heart. That's the answer. The reason you're in the trouble you're in, you, the way out of it is to follow your heart, sweetheart. And if the song isn't saying anything new. Like, if you do a Google search of follow your heart, you can get a million blog posts, you can get all kind of poems, all kind of songs. It's the siren song of our generation. But it leads me to this thought. If you've been following your heart and you're lost, tell me why you should trust your heart to get you unlost. If your lost got you, if your heart got you lost, how can your heart find its way out? Right? And how could you trust it? Why should you trust it? If your heart, following your heart, got you lost. Listen, if the GPS is broken, don't hit it and think it's going to get better and you're going to find your way out, right? If the GPS is broken, the GPS is broken. And you better find a different, stop at a gas station, right? Pray they got one of those ancient things called a map. Paper folds out like this. Remember that? Going on vacation with mom and dad. Listen. All right, how about this? Here's another side of that fall on your heart. Should, can I think that's, I think our culture would say, that's, that's what you need. You need to follow your heart. Here's one. What about the people whose hearts tell them to strangle kittens? Or embezzle millions of dollars? Or destroy their marriages and families through having an affair? Should those people follow their heart? What about you? What about you? Hasn't your heart led you to do things that you later came to see as a great mistake? Hasn't your heart deceived you? Haven't you lied to you? That girl? You know the one. That guy? That business deal? That brand new car? So I said it before, right? You have lied to you more than anybody else. And if you don't trust others after they have lied to you, why would you be so foolish to trust yourself? That's what Paul's doing right now. These Corinthians had puffed themselves up just like we have. 
They, they thought they knew better than everybody else. They had their own teachers. Well, I like Paul. Paul baptized me, so I'm in Paul's group. I don't know about Apollos. I don't know about Capon. They were separating and divisive. You know, little guy used to stay at home by himself. He, doesn't, he, can't, he can't have a pastor. He can't have a pastor. He's got some Jack Van Impey, you know, uh, end of days chart that goes from, uh, that if, you, if, you un, if you undid it, it would go from here to Bettendorf, right? All the little intricacies of the rapture and when exactly they're going to happen. <laughs> Give me a break. They were divisive, thought they knew more than everybody else, thought they were smarter than everybody else, so smart. They couldn't be in community with people. They didn't know really how to love people and be in community and on mission with people. They had elevated themselves. They were arrogant. They were deceiving themselves. They were lying to themselves. And the scariest thing is the people who are deceived think that everybody else is deceived. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of the first things that we have to learn if we're going to understand the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. Listen, the prophet Jeremiah said this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's Old Testament. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Follow your heart. Jeremiah says, it's sick and desperately wicked. That's where your heart will lead you. Well, that's Old Testament, Justin. You're right. And Jesus said in Matthew 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus confirms what the Old Testament teaches. Jesus confirms that our heart is our problem. Following our heart will not get us out of the mess that we're in. And I'm going to tell you this. If you are your biggest liar, if you are your biggest problem, then you can't be your answer. You can't fix you. So Paul says... And the whole Bible says we naturally want to trust our heart. We naturally want to follow our heart. And God says that's the problem. Your heart is jacked up. And if that's the compass, you're going to be led astray. Your heart is one of those GPS that's going a little wrong and it'll take you right over the edge of a cliff. You ever been driving the GPS? Listen, I was trying to find a brother's house. I typed in the information into my phone, into my trusty iPhone. Javin's with me. It takes us out. We're way out, almost by Interstate 80. We're like headed out towards a truck stop out there, some back roads. Tells me take a left. Take a left. I'm in the parking lot of some warehouse. And the phone says this. Park your car and walk the rest of the way. <laughs> My son goes, what? <laughs> We're in the middle of nowhere. Park your car and walk the rest of the way. No, thank you, Siri. I do not trust you. You are trying to deceive me. Right? That's what your heart does. And do you follow it? Right out in the middle of nowhere? Do you follow it right over the edge? Paul says, no. 
Paul says no. One of the greatest problems is that we trust our hearts so much. It says, get out of the car and walk. And, okay. It's worked so well every other time. One of the greatest problems we have is that we actually trust ourselves. You think you're trustworthy. Even though, if you really do an assessment right now, you know you have lied to yourself a thousand times over. They won't find out. It'll be okay. Just this once. Just this one. I'm a good person. Oh, they just didn't understand my heart. My boss didn't understand my strengths. I'm creative. I can't be stifled by schedules. <laughs> when I get down to a size zero, then I'll be happy. I know I'll be happy. If I can just get that car. That stereo, that TV, then I'll be happy. That's what I'm missing. When I get it, I'll be complete. Soon as I get through this tough season at work, things will slow down. And then I can start spending more time with the wife and spending more time with the kids. But right now, I'm just going to bear down and push through. But as soon as I'm through this season, things will change. As soon as we get this one issue worked out in our relationship, then I'll ask her to marry me. And then we'll, but right now, we just got to get down to the nitty-gritty. just got to deal with this. You said that eight years ago. <laughs> These are all ways we lie to ourselves. We cannot say, have you ever heard anyone say, I'm lazy. I don't like to work. I like to sleep. I'm a lazy person. Right? No. What do we say? I'm creative. I do my work at night. On the computer. See. Do you ever hear people just own it? Just say, I'm lazy. You know what? I'm feeling weird right now. You know what? I'm jealous of that person. That's that's my problem. I'm jealous. I see something they have, and I think I should have that. I've earned it. I deserve it. I'm Actually, if I really got down to it, I'm better than that person. And that's what bothers me. But we don't, we, we don't have the truth in us. We can't even say that. What we do is we look and we tell the person, she would get them jeans. <laughs> She would. Right? See, so he got the car. Of course he got the car. He had to get the car. He knew I wanted that car. Right? What do we do? We look, we're jealous, we condemn. Because we can't deal with the wickedness of our own heart. It's always somebody else's problem. It's always somebody else's sin. It's always somebody else's issue. None of us can say, I was jealous that's why I made the snarky comment. Right? I'm an idolater. That's why I work so much. 
What do you mean you an adopt? You work so much and you have to sacrifice something. So what do you lay on the altar? You lay your family. You lay your wife, you lay your kids on the altar, and you sacrifice them to your God of your job or prestige or whatever it is you're looking for. You know what? And God says right here in verse 20, he says this. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. See, what does futile mean? Futile means vain, empty, powerless, it's actually a quote here from Psalm 9411, and there the word is actually translated breath. You step outside today, you breathe, you see it, it's gone, right? It comes, it's gone. That's the thoughts of our natural heart, that's the thoughts of our natural man. They're here today, gone tomorrow. Right? Not only that, that's what we are. We're here today, gone tomorrow. And God's juxtaposing. His wisdom with our wisdom. He says, your greatest problem is you think you're wise. Your greatest problem is you trust yourself. The greatest problem is you want to follow your heart. And I'm trying to tell you, your heart is the problem. Your heart is desperately wicked. Now, what does that mean, desperately wicked? Because I hear some good moral people out there going, I never want to discredit you a kid. That's not what I... That's not the only way you're desperately wicked. What does it mean to be desperately wicked? It means you want glory. You want people to look at you the way they should only look at God. See, we should look at God in worship. We should look at God and say, I'll give you anything. You are glorious. You are above and wonderful and worthy of all awe and praise. That's the way we should look at God. But you want people to look at you that way. Maybe it's just your wife. Maybe she's the only one you care about. So you want... You try to do everything to please her. You really want her to worship you. Or it's your boss, or it's your coworkers, or it's your team, or it's whoever it is. See, what does it mean that the heart is desperately wicked? It means the heart has convinced itself that this world is about me. Every relationship in my entire circle is about me. What do they think of me? How are they meeting my needs? What do they do for me? How do they respond to me? How do they look at me? How do they treat me? I heard a story on the radio today, or yesterday. Kid got an F on it. I think it was, uh, I can't remember what test it was right now. Something in science. Kid get an F on his chemistry test, I think is what it was. Mom comes in, gets in a physical altercation with the teacher. Now, the first thought that came to my head was, maybe he earned the F. Maybe your kid is dumb. Maybe your kid is lazy. Maybe your kid did not put the work in and earned the F. Maybe you should take some of that physical altercation on the back end of your son. Maybe. But what does she do? She comes in, fights the teacher. Right? We have, we have this all the time. Little Timmy's on the bench. Been on the bench all season. 
Dad and the coach. Dad and the coach. And listen, I spent a lot of time on the bench in baseball, right? And I earned all of that time on the bench in baseball. Like, I looked cute, right? The baseball bats were as big as I am, right? The only hope of getting on the bench was taking one for the team, right? But I earned the right to sit on the bench. I was not good at baseball, right? Can we admit that? Can our culture admit that? Paul goes on. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. Now this doesn't just mean boasting in other men. This means boasting in ourselves. To boast means to publicly display a satisfied contentment with one's own accomplishments or another. It means to take pride in or brag about your achievements. Now, most of us know better to, than to publicly proclaim our own awesomeness. Actually, we just leave that to our professional athletes and rock stars, right? Actually, how many of you, if you won an award, right, you'd, be, you'd bring that thing to church? <laughs> There's a UFC fighter in town. Long time ago, he was a champ. He'd be seen in bars wearing the belt. Right? I was watching The Voice this week. Usher's trying to convince some girl to go on his team. Reaches under his chair. Pulls out his Grammy. Sits it on the table. She's like, really? That's how small you are? Got to brag, got to pull it out, boast of your accomplishments. See, I didn't think, I don't think any of us are that brash, right? Most of us are not that obnoxious, right? <coughs> Where up? Listen, I got a box at home. I'm, I'm proud of that box, right? It's got all my old wrestling medals. See, we got a little bitty basketball trophy, <laughs> right? Let's get the box at home. But how small of a person, if I'm going to wear that to church. <laughs> I'm get up here with all my medals hanging around my neck. Now, most of us know we wouldn't do that. Like, we would never boast in ourselves or brag of our achievement like that. But I think that's why Paul put the statement first, don't deceive yourself. Because I think most of us brag and most of us glory in ourselves in a deceitful way, in a tricky way. And I think it's like this. How many of us seriously doubt that we're really as bad as the Bible says we are? Now we have this, we go through the story of God in our missional communities. It takes you 10 weeks to the books of the Bible. And every single time we get to the couple, there's two stories in there that talks about the incessant wickedness of the human heart, how bad we are. Genesis, when God looks down and says, everyone is always wicked. Everyone's heart is always deceitful. There's always people who go, no, not me, not me. And what Paul would say is, you have deceived yourself. I 
What happens when someone confronts you? Listen to this. See, if you doubt you're really as bad as the Bible says you are, when someone confronts you and they say, that was really selfish, how do you react? Do you defend yourself? Do you justify? See, you're lying to yourself. No, I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. There's no way I did that. I'm a good person. I have a good heart. They must have misunderstood. I love it when people say, you you don't know my heart. You don't know my heart. I want to go, oh, no, no, no. I do know your heart. I don't think you know your heart. See, but when the person who understands the Bible, when the person who understands who they are and what's happened to them and their nature inside of their heart, like we weren't always this way, we were actually pretty good once, and then sin happened, the fall happened, we all been infected by sin, our hearts have been affected, that's the nature of sin. When a person who understands that, when someone confronts them, It says, you've been selfish. You know how that person responds? They say, you know what? I didn't see that. You might be right. You might. I can see how that was really selfish. That's what it means to believe the Bible. That your heart is wicked. I know that I have, a na- I have a nature that wants to deceive myself. I know that I have a heart that wants to trick me into thinking I'm better than I am. So what you're saying to me, that might actually be true. That's how a person who understands the nature of sin responds to being confronted. Now, I'm not saying that every time somebody confronts you, that it's absolutely true. Right? Their heart is wicked too. They might have ulterior motives. They might be wrong. They might be seeing things wrong. But here's a hint. People keep saying the same thing to you. There's one common denominator in that situation, and that's you. If people keep saying you're selfish, you're only focused on yourself, everything's about you, you could go, they just don't know my heart. Or you could go, I might just not know my heart. I'm saying, and I think you've agreed to me up to this point. See, that's how I kind of tricked you into this. That if someone lies to you consistently, you should not trust them. So what I'm saying to you is that you've lied to you more than anybody else, so you should not trust you. You shouldn't trust your own opinion, your own gut, your own feelings. Your heart is sick. You lie to yourself. You shouldn't trust your own judgment. But seriously. Here's what people say to me. How can people just walk around thinking they're awful all the time? That's just so negative, Justin. I don't really like Sacred City, actually, because you're just so negative. (laughs) Now, listen, there's not much I can say to that. Okay? If I go to the doctor and I have a large growth in my stomach, okay? And I go to the doctor and he says, Justin, it's cancer. I don't leave and go to a different doctor because his diagnosis was negative. That's reality. That doctor's so negative. All he ever said is cancer, cancer, cancer. (laughs) Now listen, I could deceive myself. 
I could go, that guy doesn't know anything. He doesn't know what he's talking about. All that school was for naught. He, he tells everybody it's cancer. I think I'm pregnant. <laughs> Maybe I'm the first dude to conceive. I always knew I was special. I got dirty. I could do that. I could deceive myself. I could totally ignore the prognosis. But by doing that, well, I'll be happy for a while walking around telling everybody I got a name for him. Right? Will you show me a baby shower? I can be happy for a while. But here's the problem. All this happiness has a very abrupt expiration date. Death. Cancer kills. And if I miss out on the prognosis and the diagnosis, if I just ignore it and say, no, 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 then I'm going to miss out on the prescriptions. I'm going to miss out on the care plans. I'm going to miss out on the doctors. I'm going to miss out on the process of healing. And many of us walk around with a sick heart, with a broken heart, with a sickness within. That's how Soren Kierkegaard called it. He called sin a sickness within. I'm going to walk around like that, and I'm never going to get healing. I'm never going to get the prescription that I need. So, yes, we sound a little bit negative at Sacred City, but I think that's reality. We all have cancer. We all have cancer. But listen, here's the problem. Or here's what I, I want to say to that. That's not our only message. We don't just go, you got cancer. Enjoy it. That's the prescription, right? We're diagnosing the disease, but we're also delivering the cure. We're offering up the cure. So let me summarize the diagnosis and the prognosis that Paul gives us here in chapter 3. He says, You've got a problem. It's a deep problem. It's a heart problem. What are you going to do? You have a deep scope, right? You can do it. What are you going to do? You can't operate on yourself. You're blind to it, even. Right? You got your baby. Oh, it's my baby. And Paul's saying, that ain't a baby. It's a tumor, right? Like get, we got to get that thing out. We got to deal with that thing. But we've deceived ourselves into thinking our heart's not really the problem. And our problem is a dangerous and deadly problem. Paul says this. You know how I know it's not a baby? You know how I know your heart is a problem? Because I can see it through your jealousy and strife. You are divisive. You are angry. You are bitter. You're not good in community. You don't have a lot of friends. People don't, uh, you're not friendly. You're not friendly. You're jealous. And your jealousy points to a heart problem. Those people over there aren't the problem. You're the problem. You think yourself wise. You have deceived yourself. And that is destroying you. It's destroying your relationships. It's destroying your community. It's destroying your church. And the problem is in you. That's the diagnosis. That's the prognosis. What's the prescription? What can we do? How can the Corinthians get the healing that they need Right? Diagnosis, prognosis has been made, but now what? How does one get on the road to recovery? What's the cure? 
What? Well, I, I love to, I love preaching like this because people literally look at me like, you mean like, you think there's a cure for jealousy? Yeah. You don't have to be jealous. There's a cure. There's a heart cure. Your jealousy is a problem. And again, if you're an unbeliever in this room, if you're not a Christian, this is all, I might be speaking in Chinese to you this morning. This is all completely foreign to you. Because jealousy is a natural human motivator for progress. So in your life, if you're not a Christian, jealousy makes sense to you. You see what somebody else has, you want it, so you go out and work harder to get it. So in our flesh, is what we say, in natural human wisdom, jealousy makes sense. I see something somebody else wants, and then I go after it. But that only works in an individualistic, consumeristic society of the West. Right? Because what happens is, I might be, that might cause me to increase, but it causes them to decrease and me to push away from them, and it actually destroys community itself. So Eastern societies, other societies that are more communal in nature... They see jealousy as bad. Our society, it's Western, individualistic. We see jealousy as good. It motivates progress. It keeps capitalism going. And Paul is going after the heart. He's going after the root. And he's going to deliver the cure. And I think you might be shocked. What's the cure for jealousy? What's the cure for a sin-sick Soul, a sick heart, a cancerous heart. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. No one exalt that's no one exalt himself. Look, look, look. Look at this. What? For all things are yours. For what? For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Um, what? The answer, the prescription is all things are yours. Now let me switch metaphors here real quick. What if, this is probably just totally out there, but what if by happenstance your finances were out of control? What happens if maybe the bills were coming in and you look at them and you know you just throw them on the counter? I ain't got time for that. Throw it on the counter, right? And then the kids throw them away, or you throw them away, and you forget about them. Then you start getting late bills, you start getting late fees, right? Credit score starts going down. Collectors start calling you. You're stressing out. Oh my gosh, all these bills are coming in. They've got final notice on them, right? People try to call you. One of those people, like your phone number, like changes every month. Keep in text, change his number. Almost done paid his bill. Right? You might be getting stressed out. How do I manage this? I don't even know what I'm doing. You look at other people. How do they do it? How do they manage it all? You might even be jealous of them. They must be just so much more disciplined than I am. They must have... Maybe they took finance in college. Maybe their parents raised them on how to do this. I don't know. Nobody ever told me how to do anything like this. Just stressed out. Bills coming in, stress coming. I mean, just stress. So you do, listen, here's the thing. But you're learning a thing or two, so you do the wise thing. You ask for help, right? You get this financial advisor or counselor to come in and help you make a budget 
or you know, put payment schedules together or make things automatic through your bank. But one of the first things this counselor might ask you is this. Um, okay, let's just, I need to get a picture of the landscape here, right? The financial condition. So how much is in your account? How much is in your bank account? Oh, I don't really know. Well, let's get, on, get online real quick and figure that out. Oh, I have, oh, have $1.5 million. Now, does that change anything about this story? <laughs> right? Does that change anything about this scenario? See, nothing has really changed. The problem is still there, but it's way different than if his bank account would have had a negative balance, right? I think we're all expecting red. What's it look like? Red. We're all expecting that. See, but here's the issue. Here's what's going on. The money is already his or hers. The money is already in the bank account. He's got everything he needs already deposited in his account. He just needs help on how to put it to use. It's a totally different scenario. If you're a financial counselor, you're like, oh, sweet. They just need help. He's got the money. He just needs help in telling his money where to go. Totally different. If you get down, you look, you have all red. Okay, we got to figure out this lifestyle change is going to happen. We got to figure out how to get some money in this account. This is what Paul's trying to tell us right here in the, in the Corinthians. He says, your account is already maxed out. It's full. You're a millionaire. All things are already yours. You say, well, I'm a millionaire? Listen, I knew I was awesome. No, no, no. We need to see why we're a millionaire. What's he talking about? How we're a millionaire? Look at this. Remember this. this is in light of our hearts are desperately wicked, our hearts are sick, we can't heal ourselves. Look at verse 23. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Now, this is the foundation. This grounds the whole argument here. It's the foundation for Paul's thoughts. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Paul is saying, through and because of your relationship to Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ's relationship to God the Father, everything Jesus has is yours. Everything Jesus has is yours. If you are, this is what happens by faith. When God saves someone, he gives them faith to believe. They put their faith in the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, some say, or some texts say he grafts them into a vine. He pulls them into himself. He adopts them into a family. And because Jesus Christ is united with God by nature in essence, that the God, the God we serve, the God of the Bible, is Trinit, it's Trinitarian in nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three in one. Three persons in one. Everything that belongs to God belongs to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, we get grafted into that. So what Paul is saying is your heart sickness, your heart problem, you have already been given the cure in Christ. Everything that you're desiring out there has already been placed in here through Jesus Christ and through God the Father. The money is in the bank account. And I want you to see this whole argument is grounded in who God is. God is gracious. God is Trinitarian. 
God is sovereign. God is in absolute control over all things. God is all powerful. And because God is over all things, and if we get brought into him, everything he has is for the Christian's benefit. Look how we, let's go back up to verse 22. Uh, let's start with 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Say, all things are mine. All things are mine. And listen, listen, listen. If you, if you heard this, this is not prosperity gospel. If you hear that, please hear this. The only reason all things are yours is because you are in Christ. You are in the Father. You've been grafted in by his work, not by nothing you can do or ever will do. All right? Let's keep reading. All things are yours. Look at this. And remember, the biggest fight was, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Kephas. This is what he says. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas, and then he gets on a preacher roll right here. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. Now we need to break that down. How are all things ours? Paul's saying for the Christian. Because God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Everything in your life is meant to work for your good. I didn't say for your good feelings. Sometimes he takes us through really difficult things, really jarring circumstance, really ugly times. But ultimately, he's working out sanctification. He's making us more like his son. But everything, no matter what comes to you in life, comes to you through the gracious hand of God. He allows it or he sends it. So I can get through it with his grace. And look how specifically what he says here. Paul, Paulos, Kephas. He says, what are you doing? You want to get under? You're, you're bragging on, I follow Paul, I follow Kephas. Don't you realize they're all yours? What did he say earlier in the chapter? They're servants. They're delivering the steak. Don't brag on the waiter. Brag on the chef. Everything's yours. They're saying, Paul, you know, I follow Paul. I follow, they're, 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 their argument is I, I, I. Paul, and God flips the whole script on it and says, no, 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 no. They're yours. I follow Paul. No, 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 no. I gave them for you. Preachers are for you. Teachers are for you. Teachers are a blessing to you. God in the heaven has given it to you for your growth. Look what else he says. The world. That, that just seems weird right there. Paul, Apollos, Kephas, or the world? How is the world ours? Later on, chapter 6, Paul makes this bold statement. He goes, he's he's mad because these believers are suing each other. And he says this statement, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Like there's coming a time when Christ comes back and his saints are exalted with him and we're glorified with him and we'll judge the world. It's a bold statement. 
That the world, everything in the world is working t- towards your end, working towards God's ultimate consummation. Why are you trying to milk this world? Why are you trying to milk everything you can out of this world when you will have eternity on a recreated and redeemed earth? See, people who are not Christ followers, they have to milk this life. Be jealous. Whatever you can do to get on top, whatever you can do to get more and get more and get more, you've got to do it. But Christians... We have this view of the future. We have this reality that the world has been given to us to use it to glorify God, but we don't have to milk it. We're going to have eternity on a recreated, renewed earth. We're going to have eternity to enjoy the fruits of our labor, enjoy the fruits of this earth. We don't have to use the world. We can bless the world. And he says, life is yours. Life. You've been forgiven You've been cleansed. You've been adopted by the one who offers life and life more abundantly. Jesus Christ is your life, so there's nothing left to fear in this life. If Jesus says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. There's no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You can now live this life in absolute freedom and in absolute joy. This life is yours. It's been given back to you in Christ. And he says, death is yours. What? In Christ, what can death do to us? Listen, I'm going to just speak real quick. If you're an unbeliever in this room and you're not a Christian, death, death, death is an enemy. Death is the robber who takes everything. You, you, you could amass a thousand lovers you can amass millions of dollars and homes and boats and every trinket the eye could lust after and death steals it all from you. Death takes all your trophies. Death takes all your accolades. Death takes your name. Death takes it all. But for, for Christians, for those who are in Christ, death makes us better. resurrection of Jesus Christ death has been hijacked by God to actually make us more happy and make us more holy and actually complete us and catch us up in God we get to see God when we see him now through his word and we see him now like as as a dark reflection in the mirror we can't see his shape we can't really see him in heaven in the new creation at death we'll see Jesus face to face death is now serving us Paul says, even the present, today, today is yours. There's nothing left to fear. What can man do to me? What can man take away from me? That if you understand all things are yours, if you understand that your bank account is full, that your identity is absolutely secure in Jesus Christ, and even the future is yours in Christ. That when we look and see Christ Jesus in his resurrection, we've seen into our future. Death couldn't hold him. Death can't hold us because of Christ. And we know where we're headed. We know what awaits us. Paul says, if you understand and if you believe it, and there's a difference between understanding and believing. You've had a Sunday school lesson. Maybe everything I said to you, nothing's true. 
or nothing's, nothing is new to you. But your greatest problem is that you don't believe it. We don't believe that all things are ours. We trust ourself. We believe ourself over God's word. Even though we all know we have lied to ourselves far more than anyone else has, we still choose to trust ourselves more than we trust Jesus. That's why we're still jealous. We don't look to the bank account and see what we've been given in Christ. We look to the person and go, I want that. I deserve that. I've earned that. Our jealousy, our strife, our bitterness, our covetousness, all of it is looking at the Bible and looking at God and going, liar. All things are mine. No. Or it's looking at the Bible and going, oh, hmm. That's not good enough. It's looking into the gospel, seeing the precious blood of Christ and saying, that won't really do it for me. I need people's approval. I need my boss's okay. I need the perfect spouse. This doesn't make me happy. This doesn't complete me. This doesn't deal with my sin, sickness, and my soul. This doesn't deal with my heart issue. I need something else that that person has. Ultimately, saying, I don't believe Jesus alone will make me happy. I need more. This isn't enough, Jesus. I want, I need Jesus plus money. I need Jesus plus a lot of sex. I need Jesus plus a great job. Jesus plus security. I need Jesus plus something. And listen, Jesus plus something is idolatry. And it will never make you happy. And that, my friend, is the source of all of our jealousy, all of our bitterness, all of our division, all of your insecurities. We are ultimately looking at Jesus and calling him a liar. Everything isn't mine. This world's out of control. You're not enough for me. I need more. You know what? Let me show you what this does. This is many of us would we, we would ascribe to this and say, yes, that's true. Everything is mine and Jesus. Right? Everything is working together for my good in Jesus, but we don't believe it. Paul actually shows us by his life what it looks like to believe it. What a life believing, a heart believing it, what it actually looks like. Paul is one of my favorite guys in all the Bible. Right? And you see this just dogged determination through the Spirit. You know anything about Paul? 
Paul would preach the gospel, get beat up. Many times, he was, you know, the 49 lashes that Jesus got, Jesus was almost dead before he was on the cross. Paul would get that. He would pass out unconscious. They'd throw him out of the city. I don't know how long it was. Hours, a day later, he wakes up. Oh, oh. Let's go back to the city and preach the gospel. Everybody's like, no. He just got whooped. Like, they beat you up. No, don't go back. He goes, back in, back in, preach the gospel. One time he's in a boat, sailing to an island, going to preach the gospel. <laughs> this is crazy. In the boat, storm comes up, waves, they're freaking out. Everybody, the sailors are freaking out, throwing stuff overboard. Better throw me overboard, right? He's like, well, that's right. He's preaching the gospel to the people on the ship. He tells them all, hey, guys, just to let you know, everything's going to be lost. But if you listen to me, you'll all be saved. We'll lose all the cargo. Ship's going down. God told me this. Can you swim? Hope you can swim. Uh, listen to me. Unle- let me go. We're going to live. That exact same thing happens. Ship destroyed. Everybody's grabbing stuff. They get to an island. I love it. Paul preaches the gospel in the boat. Shipwreck happens. Throws him on an island. Paul's picking up sticks, ready to start a fire. You know the story. What happens? A snake jumps out, bites him. Now, really, if I'm Paul, I'm going, really? I'm beaten. I'm shipwrecked. I'm picking up sticks to start a fire. Really? You're not here in control. All things are mine. What? But what's he do? Everybody goes, oh, he must be demon possessed. Oh, and God must hate him because something bad happened to him. He goes, ah, oh, really? Shakes it off, preaches the gospel. Nothing happens. Beaten, can't stop him. Shipwreck, can't stop him. Snake bitten, can't stop him. Oh, I know what we'll do. Let's throw him in jail. Throw him in jail, midnight. He's singing worship hymns. What happens? Angels show up, doors fly open, jailer gets saved. Okay. Jail didn't work either. Throw him in jail. People get saved. Throw him on a boat. People get saved. Shipwreck the boat. People get saved. Put him on an island. People get saved. What are we going to do? I know what we'll do. Kill him. Paul says, yeah, kill me. I'll go back with Jesus. Dang it, that didn't work either. (laughs) This is what a life looks like when you believe that everything is yours. You can't take nothing from me. Take my life. I don't be with Jesus. You can't take that from me. Throw me in jail. Jesus is with me. Take my money. Jesus is with me. This is what it means to believe the gospel. This is what a life looks like. It's like a buoy. You try to suck it under, boom, it comes back to the surface. You can't keep it down. But it starts with the prognosis. It starts with the diagnosis. Do you really believe that your heart is desperately wicked? It starts there. If you can't admit it, you don't get the healing. You don't get the cure. You you know why? Because you don't want it. You want just a little bit of help. Just just give me a little boost, Jesus. Give me a little boost. Then a spiritual pick-me-up. 
I need a little spiritual self-esteem to get me through my tough day at work tomorrow. And if you want, you come to Jesus wanting a little pick-me-up, he goes, nah, no, because you're deceived. But I'll give you a new heart. But I'll do what a good surgeon does, and I'll cause a little pain. And I'll, All right, surgery starts with a little pain, right? Cut you open, take out your heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. I'll give you a new heart. That heart will still struggle because there'll be like really two hearts in there now. Still a heart of flesh and a heart given by the Holy Spirit. And they'll be at war with each other. And some days it's wicked. And some days you'll surprise yourself and do something good. So they're always good days. But if you don't admit, if you can't see that you're sick, if you can't see that the problem is your heart, you'll never ask for a new heart. Jesus shows us. Paul shows us what a life lived, believing all things are yours, looks like, but so does Jesus. And Jesus, so Paul says, because everything's mine, I can give up everything. You can't take anything from me of value. Jesus says basically the same thing. I know who I am. I know I'm God's. I know he's for me. I know we're one. So I'm willing to give it all up. Because I know everything's mine in Christ. Everything's mine in God. I can give it all up. We see this in Jesus' third temptation. If you know when Jesus gets led, and this is not closing, he gets led to the desert by Satan. He gets tempted. And everybody always wonders, like, Satan takes him up to the top of, top of the world, the top of the temple, whatever, and says, look out for all the kingdoms. Look at everything. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the kingdoms. Now, there's two things in my mind. Number one, Let's say in on a little something. They're already his. He's the word that said, let there be light. Light happens. He's the one who spoke Satan into existence as an angel. Jesus Christ is the word that birthed everything. They're already his by divine right and fiat. But Satan tries to tempt him, tempt him to not believe that they're his, but he does something else too, which is a lot more sneaky if we don't understand what's going on. What Satan does, here's what God says. God says, Jesus, you're in me. All things are yours. But this is what I ask of you. I ask you to become a man and give up all things to save these people. Jesus, all things will be yours again. But you need to go through the cross. Listen, Satan says, I'll give it to y'all. I'll give you everything. No cross. God says, it's all yours. But there's a cross coming. See, the temptation was, number one, not to, to believe that God, God's ways are not best. That God is not good. But it's a temptation. The cross is looming large over all of Jesus' life. Jesus, it's going to end badly for you. 
and Jesus. Because he believes the gospel. He believes God's word. He says, all things are already mine. And that is so true and so real to me. I can give up everything in this life. I can lay it all down. All things were already his. And that didn't make him smug. That made him free to go to the cross and lose everything to save us. Most of us just have no idea what it was like for Christ to hang on that cross and have the Father turn his back on him. Been perfect harmony and unity since, since all eternity. And in that moment, he lost everything. Every time we hear Jesus talking to God, he says, Papa, Daddy, Daddy. On the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Family was broken. He lost his familial relationship with the Father. On the cross, he says, God, God. And that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. That Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross and lost everything so that we could be brought in, so that all things could be ours. That's how far Jesus Christ was willing to go to prove to you that he loves you. He wasn't deceived. He wasn't, you hadn't tricked him. He knew all about you. He knew how sick your heart was. He knew how sinful you would be and how self-focused you were. He knew all about you. He knows every thought. That just freaks me out. If you really think about it, that just freaks me out. But he knew God wanted a family. He wanted brothers and sisters, and the only way to make that happen was to take our place, to live the perfect life that we all fail to live, and to die the substitutionary death that all our sins deserve. And that's exactly what he did. He came and he died. He lost everything so all things could be ours. His body was broken so yours could be healed. His life was cut short so yours could be eternal. His great loss was our great gain. On the cross, he lost everything so we could gain everything. Father, thank you that I can call you Father because of the work of Jesus. That our hearts are desperately sick, but you are a surgeon. You created our heart, and you can give us a new one. Through grace. We can't deserve it. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do but cry out and ask for it. And when we're crying out and asking for it, the only reason we're asking for it is because you've already put the desire in us. Be glorified in us today. What God would do this? What God would bleed for his people? Father, as we come this morning, would you inspire repentance in us? 
when we turn from our jealousy and our ambition and our self-deceit, would we turn from that and turn to you, the only perfect one, the only one who forgives us when we fail, the only one who gives us grace. And would you confirm that to us as, as your body is broken and as your blood is shared this morning, as your people come around a table as family and we get to say, oh, my daddy has given me all things. Confirm this to your people, Father. In Jesus' name.